Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I just had the great, 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 great pleasure of speaking with Hélène Mielet about her book, Hawking Incorporated, Stephen Hawking and the Anthropology of the Knowing Subject. I learned more from this book um, than I have from many recent books that I've read. It's extraordinarily stimulating as a study, not of Stephen Hawking as the object of a biography, but rather of the ways that collectivities and individuals co-create each other and of Stephen Hawking as a self and as an individual. Um, It's extraordinarily useful. The kinds of conceptual tools that Miele brings to bear here are relevant um, to and interesting to think with for anyone interested, not just in science, technology, and society, um, or in extending the possibilities of uh, actor network theory, but anyone interested in body studies and embodiment, in images and imagery, um, in management and the way we can think about the relationship between management and science, um, and also in archival studies. It's just an extraordinarily rich work. There's so much to talk about in here, and uh, we had a great time talking, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Ellen. Hello, Carla. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Hélène Mielet about her really wonderful recent book, Hawking Incorporated, Stephen Hawking and the Anthropology of the Knowing Subject. And that just came out in 2012 with the University of Chicago Press. Um, now, this is a really, really wonderful book, and not just for anybody interested in um, reading about or conducting research in science studies. The kinds of phenomena and the kinds of concepts um, that are dealt with in this book were really exciting to me. And I think, um, as we'll get into in the course of the interview, I hope, um, in, our, in the course of our conversation, um, I hope that listeners will um, see that there are some major concepts here that are extraordinarily useful to think with, whether or not um, you happen to be thinking in terms of um, the world of science and its workings and practices or beyond. And so it, it's a wonderful book. I learned so much from it. And thank you, Ellen, so much for taking the time to talk with us about it today. Well, thank you very much. I'm very excited to talk about the book and to talk with you today. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so can you uh, start us off by saying a little bit about, in general, what brought you to the field of science studies in particular? Why this particular field um, as a way to look through or look at these questions that you're interested in? And the way I came, I mean, to science or science and technology studies, uh, I think I came to to science and technology studies through, actually, my background is in philosophy. I had a PhD in philosophy uh, of science. I did this PhD. I was between two institutions, between the Sorbonne in Paris and between the Ecole des Mines, uh, where I studied with Bruno Latour. So I had two supervisors, which explains also the the difficulty of of working between different fields. And so I was doing, uh, I was really interested in, uh, in creativity in particular and innovation and invention. So I started to work with Francois Dagonier and I explained to him that I wanted to study how science worked in the real world. And he told me, look, uh, Bruno Latour did that before you. You should talk to him and cross Boulevard Saint Michel <laughs> and explain to him that you want to, to do a, a similar study. So I met Bruno Latour. And I explained to him I wanted to to work on innovation and invention, which was a, a complicated subject for the philosophers and for sociologists as well. 
sociologists of science which were not really interested in these questions for for, for long and for different reasons. So uh, that that's that's how I, I became interested in, in in science and technology studies. I discovered a total new field, new methodologies, new concepts. I really wanted to to deal with. So they were not dealing with my question, which was a little challenging as well. And uh, that, that, that was the start of my uh, interest. And I moved, uh, I moved after that uh, because I spent a lot of time so at the Ecole des Mines and after I did a postdoc uh, in Cambridge in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science. And then I moved to Oxford where I run a program in science studies. And then I went to the Max Planck Institute uh, where I spent one year in Berlin. And then afterward, um, I was at Cornell in the Department of Science and Technology Studies, and I moved to Berkeley uh, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's been to you the, the trajectory where I felt that I really moved between, again, different disciplines and institutions and ways of looking at science and technology. Wonderful. I think, so you've mentioned actually working with Bruno Latour, which brings me to something that um, I wanted to ask you about anyway as we move into uh, this particular project and how this is fleshed out and in the book that we're talking about. Now, it's, um, it's very clear in the book that um, actor network theory is extraordinarily important, is really vital and fundamental to this project in particular. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, both how that shaped uh, this this project in particular, but also about, um, if you wouldn't mind, if there are any other major major theorists or major works um, that were important influences in how you conceptualized this project in particular. You mentioned Donna Haraway and her idea of a cyborg, but um, what other uh, kind of major uh, inspirations did you look to as you were working on this particular book? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> in fact... Um, it was what I was saying when I when I started to be interested in in actor network theory uh, was again through what Latour had done with laboratory life. So mainly the idea that you have to look at how science is made in a daily life. And so, however, I mean the, the reason I was so uh, interested in actor network theory was in part because of that, but also I was. Um, realizing that again, this theory was evacuating my question to a certain extent is what I said at the beginning, because what I was interested in, in particular was the notion of intuition, scientific intuition. So it was really linked to cognition and psychology, and I was really interested in the notion, the notion of the individual, which again was not of subjectivity, and these notions again were not really dealt with. Uh, um, with actor network theory that in a certain sense again was evacuating this question because for them everything uh, was a collective and material process. Mm-hmm. So in part it was that and, and again the philosophy of science on the other side was not interested in my question either because it was not part of what's, what makes science. All these questions were evacuated in the, in the domain of, uh, of the psychology or the, con- the context of discovery. So that was my first... Uh, uh, at the same time, I was fascinated again uh, by this theory because I thought it was so challenging 
what was offered, but at the same time I was struggling because I didn't know how to use it to deal with my topic. So I did, uh, um, um, Hawking Incorporated is my second book. And my first book was my, my PhD that I transformed into a book where I did it in an ethnography study of a lab in France. And it was for a large corporation called Total, uh, the petroleum fluid company. And again, uh, I started to deal with this kind of question, studying a guy, a guy, a man, a scientist who was considered as being extremely creative in this large organization. And again, who became an emblem for the company. So I started to follow this person and, and to look at him working in this environment. And the questions I was dealing with were, again, what does it mean to innovate in this kind of context uh, where uh, the, the, the technical and organizational constraints are really strong. And so um, so I, it began my first book. And after that, I started to be really interested in, in, in Stephen Hawking for different reasons. But I wanted to say that to say that I, this is where I started to deal with this notion of actor network theory and try to apply. And when I say apply, it's not really the right word because I didn't try to apply the, the, the theory, but try to to build some, some methodology and mainly the idea of, of studying practices in action. Uh, that was, and, and this notion of association that was really interesting for me. Instead of always trying to find uh, a shortcut to explain things just to deploy them just to follow how they are made so that was the other thing that was really important for me mm-hmm. so that was a theory was very influential as something I was I was uh, fighting against and as something I was using at the same time so that was I think what you saw in the book this it's it's very strong it's there but also it's uh, something I'm I'm struggling with I think um and in terms of the, the other theorists, I was really influenced by uh, François Dagonier is one of them. It's, it was the person I worked with uh, when I was doing my PhD, with a philosopher of science and not very well known in America or in the Anglo-Saxon world. He started to be translated, but at the time he was not. Um, and again, his work is a, uh, he's a, he's a student of Canguillem. Mm-hmm. French tradition, and um, but also is is someone again a philosopher who is interested in how objects function. is is interested in technologies. is interested in proce- uh, dispositive procedures and systems. And uh, again, is uh, far the idea that everything is. Uh, is uh, ethereal, abstract, but we really have to follow again practices and things and uh, st- stuff. In fact, that makes our daily life mm-hmm. so, very influential for me as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's in your description of your first project. Actually, you can see many resonances of the same kinds of questions, or very um, questions that clearly are influenced by. Uh, similar or, or methodologies that are clearly influenced by similar kinds of questions in this project. At, at various points in the book, listeners um, who haven't, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, um, you, you mention the importance of thinking about uh, Hawking as a manager or as a pilot of a ship. Um, and you also, there are wonderful um, accounts here in 
theories for how to possibly think about the emergence of uh, ideas and, and sort of uh, the objects of and the, or, and the subjects of creativity um, as they manifest in the work of physics. So um, we'll, we'll certainly get to that in the course of our discussion. And so it's really nice to hear about the genesis of this project in terms of the larger history. Now, you mentioned that for various reasons you chose Hawking um, as your um, subject and object for this particular book. Now, the book itself opens, I think, very evocatively with a thought experiment suggested by John Locke in his essay concerning human understanding. And that thought experiment is, what would happen if, instead of eyes, scientists had microscopes in their eye sockets? And we'll get to the importance of eyes also and uh, Hawking's eyes in particular later on. Now, you say um, at various points after introducing that experiment, they would get to the essence of things, um, they would become angels. And then you say for us, by error or by chance, I think I have discovered an angel. And that angel here um, is, in its various and his various manifestations, Hawking. So can you say um, for listeners and for all of us a little bit about how you chose Stephen Hawking in particular as the focus for this book? What brought you to him? Is he, or is this sort of Hawking phenomenon something that you were interested in before thinking through this project, or did he and that phenomenon manifest as um, uh, sort of an example through which you could look at the phenomena that you were in- interested in looking at anyway, or some combination? So uh, why Hawking? Why Hawking? It's always by, by chance or uh, circumstances. I think what happened is um, when I start, when I finished uh, my, my, my first project, uh, so which was my PhD and became a, a book, um, I was, uh, uh, I decided to do a postdoc and I went to Cambridge uh, in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science. And at the beginning, I wanted to do a comparison with my first study and, f- and continue to work uh, in the industrial world because I thought that we had had a lot of, um, uh, laboratory studies in the academic world, but we didn't know at all how the, the industrial world was functioning. So it was at the beginning part of my interest. And it became very, and I wanted to do a cultural comparison between England and France, but it became very difficult to, um, to enter this world. And suddenly, um, I thought about Stephen Hawking. Uh, again, because uh, because it was a nice comparison since I was I had studied someone who is totally unknown in the in the public. If I was telling you his name, you wouldn't know who he is. Total is I mean the, the petroleum oil company. So he was working for a very famous international company. But conversely, Hawking is extremely well known, but we don't know at all how the company behind him functions. So I thought it was a very interesting comparison. And it's how I started to become to become interested in him. However, um, the comparison was becoming too difficult to follow, and there, there were so many questions and new ideas and new things that was that were around Hawking that I decided not to to follow this comparison anymore. And I, I just focused on Stephen Hawking. But what I wanted to say it's, it's actually uh, to go back to this notion you said I was. Uh, bringing some of the concept from my first study to my second one in using this notion of management, all these kind of questions. And I think 
uh, strange is not at all what I was looking for with Hawking uh, again. And it became really uh, apparent in my study of him that it was really about management. I mean, what does it mean to be at the head of a group, for example, and do very little but enough to make this group function? So that was one of the, the, the ideas I was, uh, I was following. Um, and so, so that, that in part became, became why, uh, why I was so interested in, uh, Hawking as this, this emblematic figure on one side, as this, uh, Cartesian subject is what I described at the beginning, or the Lockean angel. I mean, the idea that, again, he was portrayed, uh, in the domain as this, this brain in a van, as really this, this brain disincorporated, uh, and, and, able to to tell us the, the the true answer on what's happening at the origin of the universe because because he's, he has a special connection with with the universe um, be, be, again because because he represents i think um, what what we think about science uh, in general the idea that to, to be able to do science you don't need to have a body you don't need to be situated you don't need to have colleagues you just need to have a big brain and that's really the modern conception of how scientific rationality works, I think. So it was at the same time this emblem, this figure, and at the same time what I wanted to to see is concretely how he was able to do what he does. Uh, again, because he's, he's, he was changing, um, I would say, the, the hypothesis of, of STS, which is again that science is collectively and materially made. So what does it mean in the context of Hawking, who actually can't manipulate, uh, can't, can't talk really, I mean, he can speak through the, through his computer, but very little. Uh, and, and so how does he do what he, do, what he does? Again, what was, was my, my question. How can he, in other words, is STS right? Or, or is he, uh, or is he a counterexample to what have been said so far uh, uh, in, in terms of STS? That was my question again when I started. But again, it was very complicated to have access to him, and it took me uh, two years to be able to to meet him uh, because I was dealing with uh, with a star, like Tom Cruise, or someone <laughs> that level of fame. So it was very difficult to have access to him. Uh, and uh, the, so that that was uh, again to answer your question. Uh, I think the reason I became so interested in him, and he, he was giving me this this uh, this uh, because of his fame, a possibility of make certain concepts of STS visible as well. Uh, I think that was um, that was my idea uh, in starting to study. Mm-hmm. I, I think that works really, really well in the book. And um, one of the things that emerges from Hawking in particular as um, the focal point for looking at these phenomena and these concepts is that a major theme that comes out of the book, and this is from very early on, is the kind of 
productive tension and co-creation of the collective and the individual, or the collectivity and the individual. Now, each chapter of the book focuses on a different kind of collectivity, describing the practices, the material objects, the people, the kinds of motion that help us understand different aspects of the production of hawking um, in, in the various manifestations of this as a, as a person, as a concept, as a um, management company, and so on and so forth. Each also looks at the different kinds of materials or materialities, including machines, inscriptions, um, people, um, articles, etc., etc., that constitute Stephen Hawking. Now, what's really interesting is that in addition to collectivities, we're also looking at the relationship between the collective and the individual. And importantly, um, I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about uh, what, what what in the book you call the, a distributed centered subject. So this is a crucial concept um, that both opens and closes the story of Hawking. It's related to individuality, but also, as you say, to the kinds of mediations that make individual presence possible. So because it's such an important concept here, can you say a bit for our listeners about this notion of the distributed centered subject? Um, What is this and how does this help us understand uh, phenomena like that of Hawking, but also beyond? Uh, And what I uh, was trying to do, so if I go back to to the structure of the book, maybe it will um, help trying to do. Um, what I've discovered again is, is uh, uh, what is interesting with Hawking is the idea that um, everything uh, is, in, is in his mind. Again, when I say Hawking, there is a form of uh, exemplification. It's not just him, but uh, a genius in general is the idea that uh, science, uh, rationality, everything is in your mind and basically uh, there is this disruption between you and um, the environment. And so what I'm trying to do is, is in a certain sense, to exteriorize all all his competencies. And what I mean exteriorize is what's happening around him. And and, uh, what happened is I discovered through my ethnography studies and through my interviews with these very complex networks that, with with these very complex networks that uh, is around um, composed of machines and human beings is what you describe is uh, is it does uh, very little in a certain sense so it's what I said Hawking um, uh, can speak but very little uh, through a computer um, so he's basically uh, uh, saying a yes or a no when people answer uh, ask him certain questions or he's able to say a few sentences but it takes a very long time to type he has to do to be able to do anything is to delegate a huge amount of of things to or tasks to the people around him. So what I try to describe and to go very far in the description in my description is how the computer is using words, how language is organized uh, in this computer, how people thought about making this this tool more usable for someone like Hawking, which means that it takes a very long time for him to write. So again, how can we do that to give him the possibility to write, to write more quickly? Uh, so I look at the computer, I interview the designer who, who, uh, who, who designed the, the, the specific program for disabled people, someone like Hawking. Uh, I looked at how uh, he was 
with his assistants and again his assistants to a lot have a certain training and ask him certain questions where he can answer by yes or no and uh, how he works with his students how he works with his colleagues how the media I was really interested in how the archivists uh, in Cambridge are constructing uh, um, um, a place called the Hawking Archive where they are now collecting all his work and trying to archive his work. And so, and so, on, and so, on. so what I was trying to do is what I call a distributed, a distributed subject would be to show how all these competencies are delegated around him and give him the possibility to do what he does, to think, to act, uh, to move. But at the same time, what I'm trying to show is contrary to what we think. It's not because he's so distributed that he's dissolved in, in this complex network, but contrary to what you, you said, each time... In this uh, particular f uh, system of distribution, I could see singularity appear uh, uh, in, in, uh, again in these different networks uh, I described. So his singularity uh, uh, appears in different ways in, in, uh, in his way of participating in the construction of, of, uh, of himself, but also in his resistance. Uh, he doesn't want uh, things to be that way, for example, so his, his singularity emerges in this particular context. Um, and so, uh, again, the, the argument was to say that he's not uh, totally disembodied or, or, or a singular, singular because he's a brain in the vat, which means the way uh, the public portray him, but contrary is totally uh, distributed, these competencies are totally distributed, these intellectual competencies are totally distributed, uh, uh, is, is, um, is both uh, competencies are distributed because people have to take care of, his, of him more than anyone else, his identity is distributed, but again, this phenomenon of distributions, his singularity is constructed and his singularity as a person emerges uh, in these complex networks. I don't know if, if it's clear. I'm oh, trying to sure. uh, So that's why I said uh, I call that a distributed centered subject because the more it's distributed, the more his ego and his singularity appears. Uh, and so it, it is this double movement that I try to, to keep in, in these different uh, chapters uh, in the book, which is in a certain way to push much further the actor network theory, I, I thought, which show this phenomenon of distributions and delegations of competencies, of materialization of competencies, but doesn't address really this question of individuality and subjectivity that I try to address. And in pushing further and further of distributions, uh, what I tried to do, and I hope I succeeded, is to show um, again how you can uh, rethink the notion of individuality and singularity. And what I tried to do again with this book is not to, um, as what I said at the beginning, is to show certain form of exemplifications. Um, is again to show that it's not just Hawking, but Hawking gives us the possibility to see what we normally don't see. Against, because of his handicap, he has to delegate much more than other people. So you see what you don't, you don't, you don't see normally. So that's one aspect. And the other thing is, I think this concept could be, uh, 
and I'm, I would like to do that. It's right to that to the domain. I was interested in applying that in science, but I think it would be interesting to do that to see how it functions in politics or in art. The genius, this conception of the genius in art, mm-hmm. in politics. I was extremely interested in. Uh, I wanted to study Obama, <laughs> and I saw that he was becoming. Uh, uh, I mean, he was he was emerging as a very interesting figure, and I thought that would be a fascinating fieldwork. That try would be fantastic. O- Obama. So this, but yeah, I, I, do you think it would be possible for you to get at the kind of access to um, Obama and his network to be able to make that kind of a study possible? It would be possible, but I, maybe just because now it's, it's, it's maybe too, too, and too powerful, but maybe try to, uh, to, to find someone a little less famous mm-hmm. And try to do that because I guess I think that would be possible and interesting to see how people at this level of uh, of of power, I guess, mm-hmm. or fame, uh, how how do they function? As what I said at the at the end of uh, of my book is, uh, I think uh, you, you could again see how a, a pop star of uh, work uh, function uh, um, again or a politician or an artist at this level of, of uh, recognition and fame and, and see how obviously uh, there is a very complex collective around them. And I think it's very clear with Obama, actually, you can see that as well. Uh, this form, the, 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 what in my book, this extended body, mm-hmm. is uh, a way, it's not really a network, but more a body. Uh, it becomes you are and it's these these people become and these people and these machines and these systems or techniques uh, are really attached to you and help you to become what you are and, and to help you to work in the way you, you work and um, and that fascinating to pursue this this notion about that as well uh, to explain to you, I guess, how this, this distributed centered subject, this concept could function in other domain, I think. Mm-hmm. It's so this is, um, this is fascinating. And in particular, you're reminding us, or you've just reminded us something that uh, comes up repeatedly in the book that I think is very important to keep in mind, which is that uh, Hawking, even though he seems like a, per- a very particular, very unique example, uh, his example acts for the ethnographer as what you call a kind of magnifying glass quote that, that reveals what we don't normally see. So this actually sheds light on um, the normal practices of, for example, science or sort of theoretical physics um, or mathematics in this case. Now, now this brings us to a set of questions that emerge out of the first two chapters. So the first chapter of the book takes us from Hacking's office to the public stage and provides a thick description of the network of machines and people, personal assistants, graduate assistants, nurses, etc., that sort of mediate this transformation transformation between the the body and the public genius. Um, The second chapter moves us um, back into the office. And so this is in particular what I'd love to ask you about. The office that basically functions as uh, Hawking's laboratory to the kinds of human material and uh, machine-based 
tools and networks that make it possible for him to do the kind of work that we associate with a practicing scientist, especially a practicing mathematician. Um, now, the, the one of the fascinating issues at stake here is that we tend to think that scientists are, as you've mentioned, these kinds of brains, right, these brains in the vats. But as you're reminding us here, and I think also um, hearkening to the work of Brian Rotman on mathematics, scientists and mathematicians think with their hands, right? Hands are extraordinarily important. Mathematics is a process and a practice. So what I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit um, about, because you do this so beautifully in the book, how does that work when a scientist like Hawking can't actually use his hands? He can't draw diagrams and calculations himself. And what in particular is the role of um, his students in his thinking? Um, and and I, I say thinking very deliberately um, because uh, it, we think of it as a kind of brain-located, disembodied phenomenon, but you're showing us here it's actually very physical. So can you speak a little bit um, about that aspect of, of the argument here? Yes. Um, well, again, what, what, what I was really interested in is to, to find where his body was, uh, in other terms. In, in well, saying what I said at the beginning, uh, trying to to think again if really uh, science works the way science and technology studies people said it works, which means really uh, through manipulation of things and through conversations and through the, the texture of, of daily life and different circumstances and so on. Um, once again, in the case of school physicists, uh, which... Uh, uh, is supposed to again work uh, mentally or just with his uh, cognitive uh, capacities, and so obviously I'm not the one who studied how theoretical physicists work. There is there are wonderful uh, um, scholars who worked on that, like uh, David Kaiser or, or Peter Gallison. Um, so I, I was uh, really uh, trying to think. Uh, with them, uh, with the, with, uh, through their work as well, how to think about. But in example again of Hawking, all these theoretical physicists uh, that uh, they study again are able to manipulate um, equations. They are able to to write equations down. So how is it possible for Hawking who can't manipulate and who can't write? How does he do what he does? So I started really interested in, again, how he was working with his students, uh, first of all, and how he was delegating his competencies to his students. So I was, I looked at how they were trained. And what I realized that he, he people often say that he thinks uh, visually, geometrically, and not analytically, and he says that as well. And so uh, I, I tried push one that a little farther and try what does it mean to think geometrically again is it just uh, what he's saying is he does anything else but his brain just to be able to think geometrically and to manipulate images and what I realized that in fact he was relying a lot on diagrams but again the question was how do you manipulate diagrams how do you draw diagrams if you can't write if you can't use your hands so I discovered that, again, his students were learning how uh, to interact with him, 
through through diagrams and to learn the language of diagrams to be able to work with them. Which means, in particular, Hawking used a lot the the Penrose Carter diagram uh, to to work with his objects. And so, um, again, what I was trying to see is where where is his body? Where is the body of the theorist in this particular context? The body of the theorist was his students because his students are going to draw the diagrams. But it's not just that for him. Is able, he says, to travel. What does he mean to travel through diagrams? To travel means that you use your body, you move, you move in the diagrams in a certain way. And so, and his students were using a lot of metaphors, like it's like it's like a pilot, you know, is going to drive. Uh, needs a map. He needs a map to be able to understand what kind of obstacles he's going to to meet. And Hawking needed a diagram be able to see the obstacles and and to understand what he was working with. So the experiment done and, and through diagrams, but again, uh, thought experiments are often thought as being the product of the mind, and I, I really wanted that it was really the product of the body in a certain sense. Uh, through this feeling of being projected and transposed in another medium and how he was able to do that. So um, I, I, I followed, again, the hands of his assistants uh, and how they were able to manipulate and calculate and transform the calculations into diagrams for Hawking to be able to to, to work with these diagrams. But again, how he was able to deal with them. And that, that was a, a very complex, I mean, it was very complicated to be able to understand this aspect. It took me a very, very long time to, to, to try to go into details, but I've tried to do. Obviously, the concepts he's dealing with are extremely complex. There's mechanic quantics and so on. So I have, I don't say I, I went into uh, the deep core of what he was saying, obviously, but I really tried to, to understand the practices and, and to show that theorists, again, uh, are, are dealing with their hands, obviously, and instruments and diagrams and, and, and their bodies, but different kind of bodies for an analytical thinker, which is going to work with his hands and go back and forth, which Hawking can't do, obviously. And someone who is more visual or geometrical in his way of thinking, which is going to use another form of body and ways of projecting himself in the mediums he's using. And so, so that, that was the, the, the point of this chapter. That was the most difficult in a certain sense, because again, it was there that I thought people would attack me the most and saying, uh, is, is the part which is the most abstract and the most theoretical. How can you deal with that? And, Again, show the work or the manipulation, and I think it's what I try to do uh, with this chapter. But I, I mean, again, it's what you mentioned at the beginning. What I've tried to do with each chapter is to take seriously what does it mean when you say he's going to perform or uh, he's to write an article or he writes an article or he thinks. What does it mean? Uh, this statement uh, for me was. Uh, to explain what it means to say he thinks 50 or 60 pages of description 
of again of of uh, of, uh, of uh, a complex network at work or a multiplicity of complex networks at work and to try to understand um, just under this little statement or to deploy this statement what does it mean and again because that's when you say he's a genius or he thinks it's a it's a shortcut to 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 go directly to the point, but you don't again deploy and explain everything that able you to do what you are doing. And again, that was uh, um, the way I try to organize my book is really to to deconstruct or reconstruct um, different parts of this individual in particular, or, or any individual is the point I'm trying to make at the end. It's again first chapter. Uh, he performs second chapter. He writes the third chapter. He thinks the fourth chapter is uh, he acts because he's he's an actor as well when he plays in a documentary. The fifth chapter, uh, the, uh, I, I interviewed Hawking. So what does it mean when he converses with someone? And the chapter six, he he becomes an archive. So what does it mean to be part of an archive? And the last chapter where I try to describe again what it means when he's immortalized and become a statue and what what does it mean uh, to 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 become something else uh, so it's that that's uh, the um, the extent of of, uh, of these different bodies or extended bodies i've described in the book that that constitute uh, that constitute in uh, in different ways <laughs> it's clear the um, what's one of the things that's really interesting here is that the one of the points that could, on the one hand, be read as one of the most abstract or the most theoretical, right? What, what does it mean to say that he's thinking? And as an extension of that, how do we think about the origin of his ideas, or how do we conceptualize what's original about his ideas? In the context, in a context like this, in which it's not just the sort of the individual mind and brain that's actually doing the th- the thinking, or I mean, it's it, listeners will will listen will hear me here, and you'll probably hear me here stumbling a little bit about my choice of words because we have to be very careful here, right? One of the things that I think the book does so well, and that you do here so exceptionally well, is to really get us readers and other STS scholars to think very carefully about what we're talking about when we use words like self, when we use words like individual or like he or thinks, right? Um, So this is why I'm sort of trying to be very, very careful about my choice of words um, successfully or not. However, okay, the point that I'm getting to and the question that I'm ultimately trying to get to is that this has very practical consequences. So in the chapter toward the end of the book, where you are looking explicitly at the process of archiving Hawking. Yeah. Um, you take us um, in a really interesting way, in a very detailed way, through the kinds of decisions that archivists associated with different institutions and at different levels have to make and are still making and are trying to, in the process, figure out how to make when they look at the kinds of materials that are coming in and having to make very practical decisions having you know, involving what to keep and what to throw out that ultimately rest in these very same questions, right? What does it mean to identify something as an authored product of Hawking and or as an original product of Hawking? 
given all of these um, very complicated issues that go into thinking through the creation of his work. Can you speak a little bit to that um, that particular set of problems um, in the context of archiving his work and perhaps any other things about doing the research on the archiving process in particular that may have surprised you or, or especially interested you um, about that um, set of practices? Yes. Um, again, it was, it was a little by, by chance that I that they were creating this Hawking archive in Cambridge. And I was at the beginning, uh, so the, when I went to the library, I, I explained that I was working uh, on this project and I wanted to look at what they had archived already. So I, I was able to access some of Hawking's papers and so on. But afterwards, it became apparent that uh, it was... It, they didn't want me to look at really uh, what what was what was going on. So, uh, what I tried to do is just not have access to the archive themselves, but try to understand the practices that are at stake uh, when you archive, uh, when you do this work of uh, archiving uh, uh, or creating an author, which is really what you are seeing. And that became really interesting because, first of all, I don't think it's, it has been done before really to look at from an ethnographical point of view, how we are work. So we had a lot of laboratory studies, and we looked at how scientists were function. But again, that that that, that this aspect uh, was not really known. So I started to look at uh, these different archivists and look at how they were trying to make a selection between. Uh, different papers. And one aspect that was really interesting for me was the fact that Hawking, obviously, everything that is said uh, by him goes through his computer. Okay, when I talk to you, my, my words are going to be uh, to, to disappear to a certain extent, except if you are recording me, which is the case now. In a conversation, uh, it, would, it would disappear. Uh, in this particular context, uh, everything that is said is, to a certain extent, recorded in his computer, which is true and not true entirely because he, it's what I describe in a book. He talks a lot through body language as well. Uh, so obviously that that's not going to appear in his computer. And he's always uh, able to switch between what he wants to save and what he doesn't want to save. But anyway, to a certain extent, uh, everything is in his computer. So... If you if you give a talk again, everything is going to be written in in his talk. I mean, from the beginning, where he's going to say hello, how are you, do you hear me, or whatever, that's going to be on the, on his on his paper, written on his paper. So the the questions that became really interesting for me is how do you create a distinction between what is written and what is said in this particular context? What is going to be classified? Uh, has a conference or has an article because most of his conferences are recycled and became articles. And again, uh, what became clear to me, it's again, it was, it was just an example of what's, what's happening to all of us, to all scholars that we are all of, of us, I think, recycling to a certain extent our conferences or, um, publishing them as articles 
or, uh, or we, thanks to our computer, we are cutting and pasting um, different paragraphs or reintroducing them in, in an article. Again, it's what Hawking does. But what does he do to the historian later who is going to look at these papers and is not going to be able to, you know, the written uh, things in the March when you, you go back and forth and try to think through your material and so on. So I was, again, it's what I try to do in the book each time, is very interested in this particular case, the case I was dealing with, Stephen Hawking and how he becomes an author, but trying to make a point about what does he tell us about, about that the use of computers uh, are, doing, are going to do to our way of thinking, or, of archiving, or classifying, or becoming an author. Uh, what, what is it going to do to us? It became really apparent also because when I was interviewing archivists, they were themselves really dealing with these kind of questions and, and being puzzled about what's going to happen to all the emails, how are we going to classify that, uh, and, and again, what, what the digital is going to, how it's going to modify our, our access to archives. And the other thing I was really interested in as an ethno ethnographer, it's how my own presence was uh, making things happen in this process. So I, I became interested in this archive, so I started to, I started to talk to someone who was at the head of um, the archives at the university, um, the library, the big library in, in Cambridge. And he didn't know about this archive. So the day after, he went to the Moore Library where they were archiving uh, Hawking's work to talk about the person who was in charge because he didn't know about it and so on. So suddenly I saw things happening, people talking to each other that they were not, I mean, they were not talking to each other until I started to investigate this aspect. And so... Again, I was interested in, in my own um, uh, um, presence. I mean, how my own presence was was participating in this uh, in this process of archiving Hawking and had an impact in uh, in uh, the way they were talking to each other or doing the, the job uh, itself. Mm -hmm. I always actually found some pictures of myself in the <laughs> which was really beautiful. But uh, because I was following following him in this particular context, and and I found this this uh, this picture, which was interesting for me, because there is also a discourse about archiving, which is really it's uh, it's our uh, we we don't read so much about the content, but how about our own practices, our own projection. Uh, about the way we classify and we worked with the material. And I had the feeling that it was a real materialization. I mean, indeed, I was part of this archive as, as an ethnographer. Uh, my picture was there, and, and that, that was another aspect I thought was, was quite interesting um, in, in just not trying to efface the role of the ethnographer, but as someone who participates in the construction of this object as well, obviously, which is maybe not... A, very original point, but it was um, very present uh, in this particular context. Mm -hmm. now, 
There, um, because I, we, we don't want to take up a huge um, amount of your time, but before we sort of get to the, um, before we wrap up our discussion, there's so much about the book. Um, it's such a rich study. There's so much here that we won't have a chance to talk about, but one of the things I definitely want to mention and ask you to speak a little bit to is the importance throughout the book, not just of visuality, but of movement. Um, you take, not, not only does one of the chapters explicitly look at the production of a BBC Horizon documentary about Hawking's work, and so you've mentioned already, um, you've alluded to this uh, case in which Haw- um, Hawking was an actor, but the book itself actually moves um, from frame to frame of reference in a way that's ve- actually very cinematic. So the, the experience for the reader of reading your book is a very cinematic kind of experience and at various points um, along the way you mention how crucial it is um, to think about Hawking and to think about this system or complex or extended body of Hawking's in terms of movement um, which is actually quite important and quite potentially surprising for readers who would think of um, a disabled person uh, with this, you know, of Hawking in particular, who's known for having very, very limited, um, at least publicly, right, in the in the kind of famous public picture that many um, readers have, um, a very limited movement, and yet movement is such an important part of the book and such an important part of the study. And I think um, what comes out here is it's a crucial part of the body, the extended body that is Hawking. Now, along um, these lines that you've alluded already to the importance of, in different ways, mapping, um, sort of ways of mapping in space by his students, um, uh, the importance of locality, the book um, really prioritizes the importance of space. And these are all important conceptual tools that at least emerge from the perspective of a reader. Now, what I want to ask you about specifically, keeping all of these phenomena in mind that at least come through to me as as one particular reader, you make a point in Chapter 4 that will recur throughout the book, and this is the point that to approach Hawking is to lose him. This seems very important. It seems crucial. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? To approach Hawking is to lose him. What does that mean for you? And what does that mean in the context of what you're arguing here in the book? Yes, I think uh, um, I think this notion of movement was really important for me as a form of um, of methodology. Actually, really, this idea that I was trying uh, to be far, I mean, kind of zoom, which is why you say there is a sense of uh, it's cinema, cinematographic techniques. It's really uh, using like a camera, you go farther or closer to see your subject uh, better. And I think in part it was to argue with a, with a certain naive conception of ethnography, which is that the closer you are to your subject or your object, the, the, the better you know him. And with Hawking, there was a sense in which the better you, I mean, you know who is in the press, you have certain qualities, certain standardized qualities that, that talk about him, which is uh, his appearance, his physical appearance, his computer, his jokes about, uh, uh, about uh, I don't know, his, uh, his American accent, 
the role of his wife in his survival, the, and so on and so on. So certain tropes or qualities that are attached to him that make Hawking Hawking and the way we know him. And when I tried to be closer to him, it became clear that it's these qualities were uh, destroyed and you don't know where he is anymore. And the, the way I talk about that is really in the chapter five with, where I interviewed him for the first time. And obviously, uh, it was very intimidating as well because because he's Stephen Hawking and because uh, it's really difficult to communicate with him through the through this machine. And I was sitting near him, and it was really hard to tell when he was done with when 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 he was writing or if I had to continue, if I had to question him. I couldn't read the body language. Uh, his students were coming to take care of him when he had a problems a physical problem. Uh, the machine suddenly didn't work, and so on. So what I try to describe is how um, uh, it was, first of all, very difficult to read him and to understand, to to be able to continue this interaction with him, and how his agency was, again, totally distributed in this network. His, uh, his I, I do something was written in front of him, of, of him and was not coming from his mouth, for example, um, and so on and so on. So... Um, and this feeling, again, was shared by a lot of people, journalists, is what I said in the documentary, uh, that tried to be close to him, or even his assistants who said that, uh, I don't know, I don't know if he likes me or not, or whatever. But again, another form of exemplification is, it, to a certain extent, is true for all of us. I mean, it's uh, we think we know this person because we are close to this person, but do we really know this person? Or... Uh, when you have a conversation with someone, it's really hard, even if you have certain form of body language and so on, to read what this person really thinks about you or about your interaction with him or her. So um, it's, I think talking is magnified because because he does so little, and I think it's part of the, the, the what I try to show in this book. What does it mean to do something? Is really the incarnation of someone who does so much and just with his brain, but in fact, physically, he, he does very little, okay? So, uh, but he does something. And it doesn't mean that I erase his agency. There is something going on as well. But I guess part of this movement I try to describe, which is some, sometimes we are in, sometimes we see him, sometimes we don't see him, sometimes we see the genius, sometimes we don't see the genius, uh, and that's what I try to describe in his, uh, in showing the magic of, of this extended body or these multiple extended bodies that make uh, this person uh, uh, do what what it does and I played also a lot with this Hawking with a little H and Hawking with a big H we play with the Hawking the man in his wheelchair and Hawking with a big H which is also the Hawking uh, the genius or the way it is portrayed uh, in the press and I try to show how this little H and this big H uh, uh, sometimes coincide some that they don't sometimes we see just the man sometimes we see uh, just the genius and so on and so on so I really try to play in my way of writing but also in my study with these uh, different dimensions of uh, of, of a personality and uh, a man and a genius, uh, I guess. Um, I don't know if I respect. <laughs> oh, ab- no, absolutely. That was great. That was really clear. Well, 
Um, now this brings us to um, the close of the of our conversation. Un- unfortunately, I'd love to keep you for another three hours uh, because there's there's actually enough in the book to talk about. It's a fascinating study. And then before um, we say goodbye, is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to speak to or to talk about, but that you'd like to mention or um, make sure um, that's clear for listeners who may or may not have had the chance yet to read the book? Well, I think I think uh, I have a sense that you 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 gave me the possibility to to talk a lot about different aspects of the book. What I, I think uh, what I try to do is just uh, to make sure that people understand that it's not a biography about Stephen Hawking, which is a, a little problem because immediately people think it's Stephen Hawking, so it's going to be a story about him. And I think it's it's what you 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 asked me to to describe. It's much more about uh, to do an ethnography, what I call an ethnography study of an individual. What does it mean to do an ethnography of an individual? Which is, and to say that this individual is to a certain extent a collective, which I try to to describe, um, uh, and and also to try to, uh, to show through through this again uh, this case or this figure. Um, different forms, exemplifications of other practices, uh, and and um, and there is something, there is nothing special about Hawking, which is probably one of the arguments of the book. Uh, just the fact that uh, uh, again he makes visible things and and practices we don't normally see, which is I think really important because it's a way of, of reconceptualizing our. Uh, what we think about uh, a genius or an individual or how science functions. And to a certain extent, it's a way of questioning um, our, mod- um, our modernity. I mean, our, what, what makes us modern is really this conception that we are an individual disconnected or we have this rational mind. And so I think... Uh, I'm trying through this study to question to question these different concepts and all these dichotomies uh, that uh, you know between theory and practice, between uh, uh, the scientist and his assistants, uh, between the humans and the non-humans, for example, or, um, and between us and the other, and try to to again to rethink uh, these different conceptions. Mm-hmm. Trying to maybe this big uh, big claim. I don't know if it's uh, that, but just try not to think it's just about again uh, Stephen Hawking. But it's it's a broad study, and uh, this is what I try to do. Just uh, I think he gave gave me the possibility to do that because of his extreme visibility as well. So that I guess that's my the point um, of this study. So now that this beautiful book is out, and congratulations, um, and, and I hope it has an extraordinarily wide readership, and I'm sure it will. So what's next for you? What uh, project or projects are currently inspiring you, and um, what, are you, uh, what are you working on now? Um, I, um, I mentioned that I, I would like to try to, to enter the domain. I mean, I, I'm working on two different projects, but one of them is, again, to try. I'm becoming extremely interested in how politics, uh, how the political domain functions, but in particular, how certain figures emerge 
in in this in this domain. So I think that would be really interesting to try to again to apply these tools and concepts I've I've developed through through Hawking and try to apply them in the political domain. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect I'm really interested in uh, now in more in anthro- medical anthropology. Uh, tried uh, to work on diabetes type 1, uh, which is uh, juvenile diabetes. And I'm really interested in, the, in trying to think about the, the notion of childhood uh, because it's, uh, it's again uh, another concept that is not think a lot uh, about and try to, to, to work uh, more in this domain. And um, I mean, it would be too complicated to go into the details, but just to give you a sense of uh, uh, to, to try to work again around this notion of personhood, childhood, uh, self and the body and technologies, which is diabetes is uh, related to a lot of technologies that help you to manage your disease. And um, so that's another aspect and think about disability in another, in another way as well. Well, this has been such a pleasure for me. I loved the book. Um, It's been a great pleasure to talk with you, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for for your questions, and I was really happy to be able to to talk about the book with you today. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. 